Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Yesterday we saw just the verse right before Ezra's prayer of confession, and we cross-referenced Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11, in which Nehemiah also had this similar prayer. But his was marked by petition, meaning asking God for something. There's no petition in Ezra's prayer, really. Look at the look at the text with me. Here's Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. And I said, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads, and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over, along with our kings and priests, to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. All right. Wow. This prayer is purely confessional. And then it gives way after the words, but now, thanksgiving to God for what he's already doing. Ezra doesn't ask God to do anything new. He confesses corporately, not just for his own sin and for the sins of his people and his contemporaries, but for generations past. And then he gives glory to God for the opportunity that's right in front of them. Man, come on, like that's a prayer, right? You confess what you can confess, and you confess not only your own sin, but you confess corporate sin, and then you behold, and you give thanksgiving to God for all the opportunities that are right there. Oh, man. So he's, he's saying, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to even lift my face toward you. We've seen something like this before. In Jesus's parable, he gives the story about a Pharisee who shows up to the temple to pray and he's bragging while he prays about how much he gives and about all that he does and how much better he is than that guy over there. Well, that guy over there is beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus' parable, he said, that man is the one who went home justified before God. Whereas the one who made a big show of his very self-centered and oddly self-glorifying prayer receive all that he would from God. So this is, this is an Old Testament foreshadowing, I think, of the man in Jesus's parable in a way. Ezra has a lot in common with that guy. He can't even lift his face. That's what the man in Jesus's parable couldn't do. He couldn't even lift his head up. He couldn't even look up to the temple. He says, our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. All right, see so these iniquities, this is the specific sins, and guilt in general, it's as high as the heavens. This is the polar opposite of downplaying sin. Man, this, if this doesn't convict your heart, you don't understand it. And it's, it's, it's wholly out of fashion. All right, I, I know, I know, I know that the temptation is there even while you're confessing sin to downplay it and 
And it does you no good because God already knows, man. He already knows. You're far better off praying like Ezra here and saying like, God, my guilt is as high as my head, as high as that. My iniquities have piled up over the, they're, they're, they're over my head. I'm in over my head in past sins and my guilt for all of it, you know, and for all the people, all the Christians of Seattle, God, our iniquities, they just, they stretch up to the heavens. You're going before God. You're telling something that he already knows and has known before the foundations of the earth. And so you might as well be honest here. This is the polar opposite of virtue signaling. It's the confession of sin. And it's the polar opposite of downplaying sin. If anything, wow, you could say like, you know, this this seems like a bit much from Ezra who hasn't done the very sin that he's confessing. He's confessing on behalf of everybody here. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. And he's pointing out the, the consequences, the discipline from God here in uh, the remainder of verse 7 that they had endured because of their sin. But now, there it is. There's the pivotal point in verse 8. Everything changes after this in his prayer. For a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God. That's good news. That grace changes everything. This is where the time of humiliation ends and the time of redemption in the earthly sense begins because God has done something. God has shown grace and this grace is to preserve a remnant for us and to give us a stake in his holy place. This remnant is something that has come up before. Ezra is praying like a true Hebrew here because he knows he knows about Abraham's prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, Seattle Christian, can you relate to that? The way that Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, can you pray the same way for the Seattle area? God, we as Seattle churches in large part, we have forsaken your word. There are so many of our congregations that have thrown their Bibles away and they have taught falsely and there has been corruption in churches and it has piled to the heavens and we are guilty but God, you've shown us grace. There is still a remnant here. We may be vastly outnumbered. According to Census Bureau data and Gallup polls and Pew Research, this is the most atheistic city in the U.S. The most generous poll says that about 15% of the population even believes in God, but that 15% includes Mormons, it includes Jews, it includes you know brands of Catholicism that are, I don't know what kind of gospel they're teaching. And so who knows what it actually is. I do know that, that if you were to most likely convey the Redemption Church to say a Baptist church, that we are 1.5% Baptist here. But again, we don't want to draw upon those denominational lines. I just want to give perspective. Regardless of what the size of the remnant is, we are here. Okay, we do see each other on Sunday morning, and we are worshiping on Sunday morning. There are still people here who call upon the name of the Lord, who confess their sin, who repent when they are convicted by the Spirit of God. There is still a remnant here. We have something in common with Ezra, and he's asking for a stake in his holy place. All right, God, he's, I'm sorry, he's not even asking for it. He's just showing how God has given them the grace of it. What does it mean to have a stake in his holy place? All right, if you... Think of this in terms of an investment. It means like, you know, we've got skin in the game. We've got something to lose. We have a stake in this. And they, they, have, they consider it an honor to be a part of the rebuilding, the reestablishing of a house of God in Jerusalem. That's what he means by 
his holy place. He's given us the opportunity by grace that he would preserve a remnant and he would give them a stake in his holy place. It is an honor, according to Ezra, to have a stake in the house of God. Now, spoiler, and if you haven't already read the book of Ezra, you don't remember this from Nehemiah, uh, God's going to fund the whole operation with outside money. Like it's all going to be Persian dollars that just cover everything. Uh, but these people are a part of it. These people are a part of it. They have a stake in the holy place of God. This is what the revival project does here. God has given us grace. We have a remnant. There are some Christians here, and we have the grace of God to have a stake in his house here. If you've got a missionary heart, you don't need to buy a plane ticket. You've arrived. If you, like me, moved here because of Romans 15, you're going to proclaim Christ where he hasn't been known. The majority of our neighbors don't really know the gospel. They, they don't know the truth of the gospel. This is it, man. If you want to be on the front lines, you're already here. And if you want to see a holy place in the New Testament sense, a house of God in the most atheistic city, that's what excites me about the Revival Project. Now, God has given even a little bit of relief, he says, even in their slavery and light to their eyes. God has not abandoned his people, and he's not abandoned the Christians of Seattle. He's extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings. That's incredible. That's just the divine favor of God. Go back and see our devotions through the series of Esther, Risk Everything, because you'll, you'll see the full story of just how God used uh, the Persians to fund really, like, uh, and bring home the people of God. It, it, he founded the Persian Empire, as prophesied in Jeremiah and Isaiah, for this exact purpose, for this very reason. They're given relief, and they can rebuild the house of God, repair its ruins, and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I've seen, I've seen uh, at least one commentator kind of uh, speak against this idea of a wall, but uh, I'd, I'd, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more charitable to Ezra and to, and to Nehemiah uh, for the construction of the wall because it was originally, that, that's the original intent anyway, behind Jerusalem. And it denotes this is where Jerusalem ends and this is where Jerusalem begins. It gave that gravitas, that credibility, that official, obvious, visible recognition that this is where the house of God is kept. In that same way, the Redemption Church, we've been worshiping for years without a building. We don't need the walls of a building in order to worship. But what it allows us to do is facilitate worship for way more than just the four hours that we rent the theater from 8 a.m. to noon on Sundays. Just imagine what we could do with all those hours. Imagine how we can minister more to children. Imagine how much more we can do in terms of small group ministry right there. Imagine how we could potentially start a Christian school, meet a huge ministerial need right here in our community. I want us to open up an extension center in partnership with an accredited seminary. I want us to train up pastors who are born and raised right here. All of this is possible with those walls. So there's more than just brick and mortar, isn't it? It was more than just brick and mortar for the people of God as they rebuilt the temple and reestablished fellowship around the Word of God. We have the fellowship of the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit's presence in our worship. 
And I pray that the Lord uses the Revival Project mightily. He has shown us grace. There is a remnant here. May we all have a stake in the establishment of the house of God right here in the Pacific Northwest. Amen.